What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. It's your host, Chris. And today, my guest is none other than Noah Rothman. All right. So he has a brand new book out called The Rise of the New Puritans, and it is officially out today. So today, at the time of recording, is July 5th. So those of you who are paid Substack subscribers, only $5 a month. By the way, you're listening it to it uh, this episode today. The rest of you will be hearing it tomorrow. But anyways, his book is out now. So real quick, real quick backstory. So recently, personally, I've been very tired of the culture wars, right? I've had plenty of guests on here talking about, you know, wokeness and free speech and all that. But recently, I've just been very tired of it because it seems like we're dealing with a lot of major issues, right? Such as the multiple mass shootings. Like we just had another one on July 4th up in Illinois, right? Uh, we also have the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And I'm just like, you know, the culture wars are just bottom of the list for me. We have so many other things that we need to discuss. So I've actually been kind of like, man, I don't want any more like anti-woke people on here because I want to focus on other topics, but I'm super glad that Noah came on and we actually discussed this quite a bit. So his book, it, it focuses on progressives and their, uh, their quote unquote war on fun. And he draws parallels with progressives and, uh, the Puritans and Puritan ideology and everything like that. And I absolutely loved his book when I read it, I got an early copy months ago, but we have a great conversation. And there is a part of this conversation because like I said, I've been kind of fed up, especially with all of the moral panics that the right has. Like, I don't know how many of you saw Ben Shapiro and many others losing their damn mind over like a half a second lesbian kiss in light here they just lost it you would think it was a full-blown sex scene but anyways uh, i talked to noah about this and he has like just many 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 criticisms of the right you know what i mean but we discussed how you know this is an issue for the left because as a lifelong leftist as a progressive like this is not what our side is about we are not about the war on fun we're not about the war on comedy we're not about the war on free speech and all these other things so i'm very glad that noah came on we had a awesome conversation discussing all this uh you know why things have changed over the years what things used to be like compared to now like i'm only 37 and i just remember even 20 years ago like humor used to be much different you used to have more of a wide range and we discussed the kind of nuances of it but you know lastly before uh you know we dive into this conversation i think this is important because as much as i hate it i've been very vocal about this on twitter i cannot stand people who leave quote unquote, leave the left because of, you know, wokeness, uh, you know, because they see it as more important than like the actual real world values that we're supposed to have, such as, you know, just Medicare for all, right? Uh, a woman's right to choose. Like, like if, if you're just so upset about wokeness that you leave because of that and disregard everything else and go to the side who's against all these things that are supposed to be like deeply rooted values, I hate that, right? But I think what Noah discusses in this book and what we discuss in this conversation are extremely important because at the end of the day, it is causing people to leave. And those of us on the left who recognize what's happening, like we need to speak up about it, even though it might give us some backlash. So anyways, Noah and I discuss a bunch of great topics such as, you know, not just like comedy, but cultural appropriation and all, you know, the conversations around that. And we try to, you know, I try to have a nuanced conversation with them. So anyways, 
Uh, before I get started, if you're not yet, make sure you're following the podcast. Make sure you're subscribed, whether it's on Apple, Spotify, or whatever. Follow me on social media. It's at The Rewired Soul on Instagram and Twitter. Love chatting with all of you, getting book recommendations and all that. All right, so make sure you follow me. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Noah Rothman about his brand new book, The Rise of the New Puritans. Hello, Noah. Thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Chris. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So yeah, I was fortunate enough to read your book a while back, way before it, uh, it came out. So tell us a little bit about the rise of the new Puritans. What inspired this thing? Well, what inspired me was the fact that I was desperate to get out of the news cycle in 2020. Uh, it was a miserable experience um, doing, you know, doing the day-to-day of covering whatever the news was in riots, in COVID, in abject misery. It was a bad place to be. So I'm having this conversation with my wife in the depths of my despair about, you know, what I'd like to do. Mm -hmm. I'd love to talk to people in industries I enjoy, you know, uh, cooking and entertainment and writing fiction and sports and everything else, you know, that exists outside the world of politics. And as I'm saying this, it occurs to me, well, nothing exists outside politics anymore. Everything mm. is, is political. There's no escape from this misery. I'm just bereft. And my wife says, well, why don't you write about that? Well, maybe that's the book. And it turns out it was the book because it didn't take uh, long to realize what everybody else has realized, but hasn't really articulated yet why the sports you watch are accompanied by agonizing over the racial dynamics in America. Yeah. Why the food you eat has to be accompanied with lessons about racial dynamics and cultural appropriation and the fact that you're killing the planet. The clothes you wear have to comport with your ethnic background. The comedy you enjoy has to be accompanied with some anguish because somebody suffered somewhere so that you yeah. can enjoy a punchline. And that was the, the genesis of this book and ultimately the, the mission that I went on, uh, the intellectual journey that I went on led me to the conclusion that there is a powerful thread that connects the progressive movement of today with the progressive movement of the 19th century, which with its progenitor, which was American Puritanism. The, mm -hmm. the, the links are as clear as day once you begin to brush off the, you know, all the historical baggage then that, that, that litters it. And it yeah. becomes clear as it could possibly be that the mission to perfect the world and to perfect yourself in the process is a puritanical ethos that has been with us and it is home in both polit political coalitions mm -hmm. over the course of American history. It's only now coming once again to the fore on the left in ways that are surprising because for most of our adult lives, it's been the left's mission to uh, normalize the kind of self-gratification that can even be self-destructive. Licentiousness, hedonism, those were values on the left for yeah. most of the 20th century, no longer, increasingly no longer, I should say. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's, that's what I loved about the book. Like, I, I just think the, uh, the parallels you draw with like, you know, the Puritans and I'm like, yeah, this, this kind of makes, this makes, makes sense. sense. And it's, and it's interesting because, you know, I'm a lefty and I remember, you know, just, you know, I'm, I, you know, I just turned 37 and I, I just remember it being a lot different and how it just kind of changed 
over recent years, and one of the things which we'll dive a little bit more into in a bit was especially around comedy, right? Like that's where I'm like, okay, seems like seems like we took a wrong turn, you know, somewhere. But let me ask you this, because you mentioned, you know, part of the inspiration for this book was, you know, politics are everywhere. And this is something I've been thinking about a lot, Noah. So let me know your thoughts on this. Like, I get, I get curious. I'm like, does it seem, does it seem like everything's political or is it just the bubble that I've put myself in, right? Because I'm constantly watching the news. You know, I'm on Twitter. I'm looking at updates. You know, I inundate myself with it, right? right. Because sometimes I look around and there's people who have, absolutely no clue what's going on right they're like they're just in their own world yeah they're they're, yeah and i'm like yeah it must be nice you know so (laughs) so do you think do you think it's actually growing and more people are like more politically conscious and conscious of kind of these social issues and arguments and stuff or do you ever think like maybe i'm just surrounding myself by it yeah i'm kind of on on two minds on that issue Uh, i tried very hard in the book to distinguish albeit without quantifying it because i don't think it's quantifiable the fact that we're talking about a very small group of people who are not just not liberals, not Democrats, not even progressives, but a particular sort of puritanically yeah. inclined progressive. Now, this may be a small contingent, but it punches way above its weight class. Yeah. Uh, it has influence in every facet of society. So, yes, to a degree, I do agree with you. We're talking about a very small number of people. The very small number of people happens to have captured every institution in the country. They are beholden to the very same um, impulses and moral uh, moral objectives, moral uh, imperatives that the, the people who steep themselves in politics are. And they just happen to be in positions of authority in the food world, in the sports world. I mean, the very it might be a small group of people who behave like this, but they also broadcast on ESPN and, and mm. define what, what the content is on ESPN. Yeah. They also de- determine what is fashionable in the fashion world. And, you know, what uh, what comedy you can enjoy or rather not enjoy. Yeah. Uh, and that's the sort of so it is we're talking about a small group, but it is a small group that is composed of such such uh, an influential set that it has become ubiquitous, even though this this particular impulse that is on display, this intellectual tendency is appealing to very few. Yeah. So. Here's what, you know, I wonder about, like, you're, you're talking about, you know, it's, it's starting to pop up and you see like commentators, like you mentioned, like ESPN, it's just kind of popping up everywhere, you know, just off the top of my head, Disney's had to make statements recently that's, you know, become a whole thing. But I'm, I'm a numbers guy, right? And I also try to prioritize my, you know, what, what concerns I need to focus on. So for example, I'm a recovering drug addict, right? And this is something that I've been passionate about, just the opioid crisis and everything, killing tens of thousands every year. We hit like a record number during the pandemic. I'm like, this shit is serious, right? And, you know, not to downplay anything, because I don't think, I don't think any honest person would argue like, hey, do racist things happen? Absolutely. Do transphobic things, ha- homophobic things happen? Yes, right? But it's the number. Right. Because when these kind of uh, moral outrages come up, they they get to this volume of like, this is an epidemic. We need to stop it. Right. Like, for example, after Dave Chappelle's uh, stand up, you would honestly think that there's like a transgender genocide happening. Right. (laughs) And I got I got curious and I started to look up the numbers and I'm like, okay. And again, not to downplay, you know, the violence and things that happen. But I was like, okay, again, leveling my concerns. So my question to you is, 
How do you think it's, it's become so powerful for this small group, this vocal minority and how like, you know, like these multi-billion dollar companies are getting extremely afraid of these things. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. I think social media plays a significant role mm. because currency on social media is hyperbole. Uh, you, in order to get attention, to speak above the general din, um, a competition of one-upsmanship is sort of the, how you engage in in the in that universe. So if you're nuanced or subtle or have any sort of uh, any, anything that diminishes the the world historic import of the subject you're talking about at any particular moment, you don't get the the attention, and you don't get the currency, and you don't get the reward, the the endorphin rush. You know, when Ooh. the boot pellet drops down from engagements. Yeah. Uh, and that's the sort of thing that I think has infected the discourse to a degree that it it erases the distinctions between, for example, discrimination against transgender people, even violence against transgender people and the world historic gravity of burritos. Yeah. Of your hoop skirt. Yeah. of Half a dozen other things that have almost no political significance, not none, almost yeah. no political significance. And the distinctions between them are erased in this mad rush to generate attention for yourself, first and foremost, mm. but also attention for a particular ethos and, and an, an issue set and a way to approach that issue set that is steeped in the language of morality. We, we don't mm. talk about the language yeah. of dispassionate legislative affairs or even science. Uh, it is the language of, of a church, of a congregationalist church, in fact, with its eschatology and, and um, you know, uh, apocalyptic sort of notes in the background. Uh, and that religiosity is very native to how Americans talk about moral crises and frankly, moral panics. And mm. so we've had a, a lot of moral panics of late, uh, in part because of the language we use. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, especially with the religiosity of it all, like I had John McWhorter on when his book came out and kind of like talking about how this is like kind of turning in, into this religion. But, you know, this is where I, I got interested in all this when I got canceled back in 2019 and just had hundreds of thousands of strangers coming at me. And it's when I really started like reading as much as I could about like moral psychology and moral philosophy, right? And just trying to understand like, what the hell is going on, right? And there's this, this whole just kind of idea like, here's what's right or wrong. And if you are against this, if you're not doing what we find morally acceptable, like you need to be just, gone right and there's a lot of like trying to silence or deplatform even though people argue that deplatforming isn't happening like uh you know to the extent of that like i think it's bad enough that the attempt is happening so often right sure. to get people removed or you know taken out of a job but like uh i'm, I'm curious like whether it was a, a a chicken or an egg situation with the puritan uh reference to this right like when you were looking at this did you think like oh this is like the puritans right or did you start researching and be like okay these things line up and like how much research did you have to go into like the puritan history on all this yeah it's more of the latter um for two reasons one it was part of the intellectual journey that just led me on this direction Ooh. initially the sub headline of this book which is fighting back against progressives war on fun was the uh initial pitch the war on fun um, and it was in part a, uh, a commercial decision on the part of me and my publishers to, yeah. to root this in some historical, uh, with some historical mooring and also over the process of researching the book, it just became 
a natural fit. It was an unavoidable conclusion that was impossible to ignore. Um, my first book was on social justice generally, um, which was very much a, a bipartisan phenomenon and is a bipartisan phenomenon and how it manifests in um, hostility towards the sort of uh, enlightenment era liberal institutions that we've developed in order to to disperse, to quell, to quiet the passions of the mob. Mm. And what you're talking about when it comes to being canceled, for example, as you've no doubt experienced, unfortunately, to your, to your great consternation, it sounds, uh, are just basic crowd dynamics, the elements that make for a mob, which are yeah. the same throughout history. Uh, Elias Canetti's uh, book on crowds and power, which I cite on a very regular basis because it's the, the essential study of how individuals lose their capacity for rationality in yeah. crowds and how crowd dynamics exist and how, how they form and how they disperse and what their motives are and um, what they what they seek and what they achieve and what happens when they achieve it. All that is is in this book and it's an incredibly powerful book. That was a social justice book. Um, it's a little different in the puritanical context because we aren't really talking about crowds. We are talking about institutions that are captured uh, by a, a, a certain set of individuals who have a conception of culture and society that is homogenous, that is um, uh, generally strife-free in part because that, that was the Puritan milieu, milieu and only for the external conditions they experienced. They didn't create this harmony, this harmonic, you know, utopia in the colonies, uh, you know, out of, out of whole cloth. They, they benefited from a lot of historical conditions that were not necessarily of their own making. Nevertheless, that was the Puritan experience. And we see now that very much in the effort to capture these institutions for mobs, not by mobs. Mm. They're captured and they are utilized to uh, the benefit of whatever the, the mob demand is. Now, as mercurial as that mission statement would be, you would expect these institutions to sort of fall into disarray. And they are. We're witnessing it mm. in real time, um, which is the other instinct ahead of writing this book, which is that, again, I just wanted to have a lot of fun. And yeah. I hope you did, too. Yeah. In the process of having fun, we must reclaim joy in our lives. And one of the ways we reclaim joy in our lives is to look at these people who are joyless, miserable, self-sacrificing, performative, um, uh, performative in their religious zeal towards whatever their goal is at the moment, which changes with the wind. Uh, mm. And that's hilarious. It's yeah. hilarious. And there's no reason why we shouldn't be laughing at this, with the exception of the fact that because it punches above its weight class, it exacts a price. Mm -hmm. If you have any affinity towards this group, if you share its ideological goals, which most of the people I spoke with do, if mm. you are inclined towards liberal politics, um, if you just simply don't want to offend and want to keep your head down, uh, this is this this group of people and their which is not like a mission. It's not like an institution. It is just a, a set of values in the ether um mm -hmm. this institution pay, it makes you pay a price and it trains its fire particularly on people who are willing to agree with them why because those are the people most willing to genuflect to bow down to give you what you want and provide you with the appearance of efficacy it does you no good to go after a hard target that simply ignores you yeah. and you walk away you look powerless you got to go after the people who are willing to lend you power and that's yeah. in part what this has done, which is why it has silenced so many of its would-be critics. My job and my, my effort is to give you license to take back some agency and to laugh at the yeah. things that are objectively funny. 
yeah. for, without fear of consequence, because only fear of consequence is preventing you from indulging in that very instinctual process. And I, this is another Puritan thing. I'm sorry, I'm filibustering no, here. Go for it. This is another Puritanical impulse, and this makes an appearance in the chapter Prudence, which is on food and comedy. Mm -hmm. um, it is that these two things produce in you involuntary reactions. The, the gut laugh that bursts out mm -hmm. of, after a ribald joke. You know, the sigh of contentment you relieve after an Epicurean meal. This is the sort of thing where your body betrays you. Those reactions are not governed by the intellect. They are ungovernable yeah. by the intellect. And therefore, you are ungovernable. Terribly frightening thing. Yeah. You must be forever containing your own passions. And when you can't contain your own passions, when your own body betrays you and, you get, and re reveals a little bit of your true self, that's a truly terrifying thing. And it must be, must be taught out of you. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, especially with like the silencing, like going, going back to, you know, what happened to me, just, it took me so long, like, what is it? Three, three years now, I'd say it was a year and a half, almost two years, almost until I started this podcast where I was afraid to mention so many different things, right. Or say things because I knew like, while, when I was in the, when I was just in the eye of the storm, everything right and you discuss this a bit in the book right like like it, for example i think a great example is when when somebody makes a mistake right like if you apologize you're not acknowledged sorry you're an acknowledged mistake right yeah and then and then if you don't apologize you know it's even worse right and it's crazy and one of the reasons i've taken issue with that is coming from a background of addiction like i've seen you know i've worked in treatment i've worked with thousands of addicts over the years right and i've seen how people can change and i couldn't imagine going up to someone trying to get sober right and a lot of us drug addicts we're not great people in the heart of our addiction right but then going up to them and saying hey no matter what you do you will never be forgiven for this thing right and it that's one of the issues that I take with all this stuff is because it feels like, you know, we're, we're not incentivizing people to grow, to change, to learn. And you talk about a lot of these, you, you have some of the craziest stories in the book and I'm, and I'm just like, this can't be real. Right. And then I'll like go Google it or something. I'm like, holy shit. You know, it's, it's absolutely wild, but how just, to, I don't want to interrupt you. No, go ahead. That's an important point. And it's where I, I take a little bit of issue with, some of the claims made, made, for example, like Professor McWhorter, mm. who I admire quite a lot, and I, I don't take issue with his um, categories, although I do uh, contend that what we are witnessing here is not simply a secular faith, which is something that you hear often from critics of wokeism, that it is, it is a substitute religion. Mm. And I think it's a little different insofar as this particular ethos doesn't have the fundamental trait of a religion, which is deism. There is no, there is no higher power that can provide you forgiveness and absolution simply isn't there. Yeah. Um, but there are codes of conduct that mimic a religion, moral values that are religious in nature, uh, or at least spiritual in nature. Um, but it also transcends the, uh, the conduct of religion and it transcends politics. Generally, I call it a way of life. It oh. is it is a code of conduct that should govern every facet of society, not just your individual choices, but the institutions that you uh, are a part of or around or orbit to say nothing of the state. Um, and that's why I think it's it's a little different from a secular religion. I call it a Puritan, a Puritan approach to social organization because it, is, it mimics more, in my view, a way of life than a church. Yeah. 
And I, I'm curious too, because I'm always looking at like, you know, just uh, cognitive dissonance or just like, you know, people just having like blind spots of things. I'm curious, like why you think, why you think, uh, you know, the people who are doing this part of this don't see these uh, parallels with like the Puritans. Like, for example, I grew up here in Las Vegas around a ton of Mormons, right? Mormons, not Puritans, but like, you know, the, the subtitle of your book, The War on Fun. Like Mormons, like they don't even drink caffeine and stuff like that. Like I grew up around these people. And yeah, if you look at the history of the left, right? Like we're talking about like the hippies and the free like love and like just Woodstock and orgies and drugs and all these other things, right? Like they, I was always part of the fun team, you know? And now like, I'm like, what the hell is happening, right? Like we can't laugh at certain things. We can't do certain things. Like there's so much going on. And I'm just like, do you guys not see that you're becoming what we're supposed to be against like how like where where is that mental gap happening do you think like how do, yeah, that's how do right. we get here no i mean we, as you and i were growing up i mean the fun police were all to be found on the right mm -hmm. uh it was the right that didn't like how you lived your life you know the tabloid trash you led the read the entertainment that you enjoyed it was all degrading society breaking society apart and it was and it was steeped in a, in a morality too uh and you have seen sort of that mimicking and it, there's an extent there's a role reversal to a certain extent, not entirely. Um, there has been a libertarian element on the right that is gaining for that has reduced the attractiveness of some of these old culture wars that the right used to fight. Not entirely, obviously, as we're witnessing in the wake of this Roe v. Wade decision or the decision in Dobbs, mm -hmm. but to a certain degree. And that vacuum has been filled by a more censorious, moralizing, preening, I would argue, uh, left wing. But it's not to say that these traits are exclusive to either coalition. We're all the legatees of the puritanical heritage. Um, they just rise and fall at various degrees in our political maturation. And for most of our adult lives, we matured in a, in a state in which the libertine um, sexual revolutionary had emerged dominant and ascendant, first in culture, then in politics in the 1990s. And by the early 2000s, it was an unquestioned social covenant around uh, the promotion of self-gratification as its own virtue. Uh, yeah. That was a left-wing value, and it was libertarian to a, a, a great degree, although it was in, uncomfortable and we're learning incompatible with how the progressive left views state power. Nevertheless, at the time, it prevailed. And this was the dynamic that we all grew up with, right-wing prudes, left-wing libertines, and that mm. was a stable social covenant going back and forth, you know, with, with in between the 45 yard lines. Mm -hmm. um, and we've since seen a much more familiar version of progressivism rise to the fore. Uh, and we should define those terms, I suppose, because how did Puritanism become progressivism? So Puritanism had a very short uh, life, uh, you know, high Puritanism in this country didn't survive much into the 18th century. Um, and it was, its values were, were gone before the Puritans themselves. But out of that experiment rose mainline Protestantism and mainline Protestantism, particularly in New England, had a variety of moral uh, crusades that it was beholden to, among them the abolition of slavery, um, the promotion of democratic institutions, the promotion of, uh, of social uh, welfare ben benefits that would, uh, you know, create a, a safety net in the event of, that you so you wouldn't have to rely on charity alone in your darkest hours. All this stuff is is good is noble, is nothing that you could ever take issue with. Um, but also from that 
process emerged uh, a variety of religious objectives, namely, for example, we're talking about uh, educating, you know, young people and providing charity for young people and schools for young people. That was religious education. And it wasn't because we just wanted to make these you know, young people educated. We didn't want them to go to college. Yeah. We wanted them not to kill and rape you. Yeah. That was just, that was the only problem here. It was, this is Jacob Reese's other half. We were providing them with a religious instruction in order to, to cement a social covenant that would keep us safe. Likewise, pure, um, the temperance movement and prohibition was the central religious crusade. And it was meliorist, which is to say meliorism is the idea that you can, the world can be perfected at the very least made much better through human labor. And if it can be perfected through human labor, you are obliged morally to labor mm. in the pursuit of that objective. You can't, can't shirk that responsibility if the responsibility exists at all. And that's why we had the greatest Protestant crusade of all prohibition and the greatest horrors, the legal horrors that we've ever witnessed as a result of this failed experiment. Um, you go through the course of the 19th century and you'll find several tie-ins to what was mainline Protestantism's moral crusades against impure literature, against you know, half a dozen other polluting influences that created, that, that led to degeneracy in adulthood. And that's very much still with us. It took a brief vacation in between World War II and yeah. 2013, I suppose. But that was the aberration. The sexual liberation movement was the departure from history. It was not the norm. It mm. was a phase. Interesting. Yeah. And, you know, and that, that kind of helps something that I've been just kind of like trying to figure out in my head. And I'm curious your thoughts. And let me try to explain this as best as possible. Because it seems like, it seems like our values have kind of shifted. Like, for example, you just mentioned, you know, everything going on with the Supreme Court, overturning of Roe v. Wade and all that. So as, as a leftist, right, I feel like I have certain values. Like, I'm like, cool, like universal health care, women's right to choose, you know, uh, I'm down for like universal basic income, all these different things that like help people have a better quality of life, right? But, but like not just like the progressive values, but what we've seen is this exodus from the left to the center, the center and or right. And this is something that I bitch about on Twitter and stuff, but I'm trying to understand how this, this movement, right? This whole thing from the progressives has gotten so bad that people are like, you know what? I'm gone. I'm leaving the left. I'm done with the left. I'm going to move this way. I'm like, holy shit, you guys, like, do you understand like what we're fighting for hmm. over here? Because I get it. I hate it as much as everyone, but I do understand when people have had these like mobs attack them, when they are constantly getting like told that they're an awful human being, that they're just like, I'm done with it, you know? So uh, I hope that makes sense. Like the people who are leaving, yeah. it seems like this has trumped those other values I'm talking about, like uh, what leftists are supposed to care about, which is like the welfare of everyone rather than, you know, just like this kind of individualized type way of living. Why do you yeah. think that is? I mean, it's a very good question. Um, I, I hope I provide something that's resembling an answer in this book, but I don't think you could <laughs> even get a comprehensive answer to a problem that is still evolving. And yeah. we're only still wrapping our hand, hands, hands around. Um, so law, for example, makes no appearance in this book, uh, as does school, as does a workplace, unless your workplace is promote, creates a cultural product. This is explicitly and exclusively about that which is supposed to be fun, existing outside the conduct of politics. And when we talk about the Dobbs decision and the burst of moral enthusiasm we've seen from the right, 
to try to test their new legal parameters, we have to make the distinction between culture and law. The decision in the Supreme Court case is rooted in two generations of legal arguments against it. Um, the enthusiastic response from state legislatures to try to figure out what their new environment will let them do is based in culture. It's very different. And the two mm. things I think are um, ex distinct in ways that we need to actually define, um, in part because what we're not talking about here is, uh, you know, an exclusive, the left has become the fun police and the right is just a bunch of libertarian, you know, get along, go along, get along guys. They're not. Yeah. Yeah. There's, they're still very social, socially conservative. And there's a, that's a line of criticism that I've fielded from this book many times. And if you're going to say, well, Republicans still are, you know, socially conservative and they still, you know, try to try to promote their cultural values. So they're, they're puritanical too. I would say searing insight in 1988. Yeah. If I was writing a book about the old Puritans, that would be a really profound revelation. <laughs> yeah. But it's, I'm telling a new story and a much more interesting story, frankly, I think, than than that. Um, when we talk about, and when you think about Puritan, you do think about sex and its and sexual prescriptions and behavioral norms, most of which, again, you and I would probably associate and attribute to the American right. Uh, that has been changing with remarkable alacrity over the course mm -hmm. of the last decade to a degree that nobody even wants to recognize, particularly on the left. Take, for example, the many proliferating sexual orientations. Mm -hmm. um, go on the internet, you will find a political program associated with all of them. And the, the you know, postmodern language of uh, self-empowerment around all of them, with the exception of heterosexuality, which yeah. is actually has a, a quiet stigma building around it. The people who identify it, most of them on the left, call it heteropessimism. They uh, usually apply it, uh, the sympathy for which they can muster for those who suffer from heteropessimism is usually reserved for women. Men mm -hmm. tend not to get that kind of apple polishing treatment. But nevertheless, it is a, it's a theoretical version of libertinism, a theoretical version of sex positivity that is, has a political utility to it that it removes self-gratification from the process. It is a, quote, quietly revolutionary act to attack the, quote, heteronormative social order. Again, we're talking about politics here. We're talking about activism and direct action, not self-fulfillment. Mm. And yet, why, if sex is so celebrated, why are so many politically progressive young adults having less of it. And they mm. have been for a long time. The answer can be found in a variety of prescriptions that the left and exclusively the left has begun to create in order to avoid anything that resembles sexual assault or sexual harassment. Two things that are crimes that should be prosecuted to the fullest extent. Mm -hmm. And yet the state and schools to a certain degree have gotten in the game of trying to establish what consent is what consent can be and how ongoing it has to be. And they've created uh, easily challenged and often overturned guidelines in law around expanding the definition of what constitutes consent, including a physical binding contract in many cases. We're no longer talking about a social contract or an oral uh, agreement. It has to have an affirmative consent guidelines, have an actual paper component to them mm -hmm. in order to prevent retroactive violations of this sort of thing that can be actionable either in a court or perhaps a, a college uh, star chamber that has been created as a result of these Title IX changes, for example, much of which flout the Constitution. So the rule is very fluid and floating, and it has created an atmosphere of fear because there are real social consequences if a cue is overlooked or a mm -hmm. signal is misread, or even the day after somebody has a weird feeling about something. And that can produce 
consequences that will ruin your life and ruin the land, even people who were victimized, genuinely victimized by, um, by sexual abusers have found their abusers absolved in real courtrooms because yeah. these new regimes have violated their fourth and sixth amendment rights. And so they don't get justice and justice isn't even the goal anymore. So mm. ultimately the objective for students who are concerned with their own, um, you know, self-preservation has been to just simply avoid the process altogether. It's not hard to find young women saying very loudly that they're afraid of sex. They don't find it fulfilling. They don't find their, the, their, uh, the people, the young men who have to woo them boldly and assertively in order to actually have carnal relations in the first place, engage in the sort of behaviors that render them sexually appealing because they're scared. Mm. Yeah. And the result of has been a marked decline in the number of people who are coupling or who are living together or getting married and certainly who are having casual uh, sexual encounters uh, in their in their late teens and uh, late teens and early 20s. Um, and this is a phenomenon you would think, wow, that's got to be really right wing. If I told this, if I said this to you, <laughs> yeah, and it, yeah, it would be like an abstinence education. If I said this to you a decade ago, you'd say like, wow, there's a, there's a big right wing thing going on in this country among young people, right? Yeah. No, not at all. Yeah, and you know, like, so let me, yeah, I'll pretend to be one of one of these folks real quick because I'm curious how you respond to this argument, right? Like, if we look, if we look at progressiveness, what is that, right? It's like moving forward, changing things. Conservatives are like, no, we need to act like it's 200 years ago. That's the way it is. But progressives, we're always trying to advance and move forward. So the argument, and I'm sure you've seen it a thousand times. The argument is. No, things are changing. We're moving forward. We're progressing. That's why it's progressive, right? So when we're talking about consent, uh, you know, just any kind of sexual relationship, just courting, you know, uh, anybody, right? Like they're saying like, no, we're changing how these things are. And I've just noticed like a massive overcorrection, right? The Me Too thing came out. So many people were doing awful things. Stuff's been going on forever, but it's like this overcorrection. But anyways, Getting back to it, how do you respond to that argument? Like, no, we're just progressing. Comedy is a good one, right? Like, hey, these things are no longer funny. You know, like I remember growing up, I talked to my girlfriend about this regularly. When I was growing up, internet was still kind of in its infancy before social media. Like the pinnacle of comedy was dead baby jokes, right? Like I could just sit there and just read a bunch of dead baby jokes and just laugh. And I don't know why, but I would just, laugh because it's so ridiculous right but anyways they their argument is that we're progressing we're advancing so how is that not progressivism how is that puritanical what do you say to that noah so yeah twofold let's take the comedy bit first um i want to write down what i want to say to you because this is a two-part answer okay. uh the <laughs> first part let's take comedy um so yes what what you describe is actually, yes, yeah, something I remember growing up with too. And it's pretty horrid. It's same with ethnic jokes. I mean, these are sort of things that we were steeped in. And in the process of social maturation and our common culture has evolved, we no longer find a lot of these things funny. That's not weird. That's part of how common culture has evolved. And I talked about it in this, in this book, the degree to which minstrelsy, anti-Semitism, all the stuff that really was like the height of, of humor at the turn of the 20th century is, is no more and should not be. And the reason why we have common cultural evolution is because we have a common culture. Mm. Um, what I, I fear this movement risks because it has taken aim at the punchline. Uh, and I describe in the book the ways in which it has 
anathematized the release at the end of a joke and emphasized the tension in the build up to a joke, um, up to and including, and I use uh, as just as by way of an example, Hannah Gadsby, because her, her fans do her a disservice insofar as what they really love about her act is not when she's funny, but when she's very explicitly trying not to be funny. Yeah. Um, she, she's an anti-comedian insofar as she leverages her pain for humor and sometimes won't allow you a release, sometimes just lets you marinate in her yeah. pain and examine your own sense of humor. Like, why do you think that's funny? Um, that's the sort of internal torment that her fans like and appreciate. They, oh. they like the torment. They like the, the suffering and the absolution that they receive from their great display of public labor and penance. Um, and that's a great disservice, I think, to this comedian uh, and her body of work and a great disservice to the industry, to the to comedy in general, because what they're doing is sanitizing the culture to a degree that what they, they will achieve. They will be able to live in a world in which they, they don't encounter the kind of comedy that they think is abusive, is not funny, is rude, is, is uh, you know, leverages awful things like deceased children, as we we're just describing for a humor, for a joke value. They'll never encounter it. That's not to say it's gone. Mm -mm. It's just underground. You will no longer be able to police it. It's yeah. outside your reach. You might even not know it's there anymore, but it will be, and it will fester and it will be, uh, it will grow outside your capacity to police it and thus creating an atomized culture. We will no longer have a common culture that can evolve in the directions in which we think are probably positive. We evolve with our common sense of, uh, of, of mission, purpose, and society. And when you do that, they'll be, they'll be patting themselves on the back for what a great job they've done. Well, all the fears and threats are metastasizing just below the surface. Ooh. Likewise, why progressivism tends to turn on progress. Um, there's a couple of examples of that in this book. The one that jumps to mind is in the promotion of uh, values that will systematically destroy the global system of trade and, uh, and, and food growth and food Ooh. promotion that has produced a miracle in the, uh, in the development of the human experiment and, and the human condition. Since 1991, which is the first time we've had a global marketplace since 1914, uh, we saw uh, poverty, extreme poverty defined as, I think, living on $1.50 a day, declined by almost a billion people. Mm. Um, we've seen malnutrition in most of the world decline by, I think, 10%, roughly 10%. Uh, all of this is attributable to innovation, to trade, and to new methods of developing and disseminating food around the world. And it's not hard to find, as, as I demonstrated in that chapter, uh, vast swaths of the progressive uh, firmament lamenting this profound innovation and change in how we live our lives as human beings uh, for a variety of very parochial social reasons that they perceive to be grand and, and historic and yeah. very important that there are, you know, food workers that does, don't have the same conditions that we have don't, And we've, uh, we've, we've pornographized food, food, you know, it's commodified, it's cheap. Uh, you no longer have any connection with the land, with the earth, with labor. Um, it's very spiritual in its, in its forms. And it argues very earnestly for consigning billions of people to starvation conditions. Mm -hmm. Because that's, that's the, the spiritually fulfilling alternative to modernity. Um, and this is becoming what we're, what we're calling quote unquote progressives. Uh, and it's slowly descending into the territory of oxymoron. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. I'm, I'm rereading one of my favorite books. It's, it's called spite, right? But it's because we see it everywhere and it seems so irrational, but it's, it's hurting yourself 
while trying to hurt somebody else. And that's what I see, you know, the left, my side doing. Like I'm sitting here, I'm like, you guys were paying so much attention to just the most ridiculous things, right? We're, we're expelling so much energy, right? Meanwhile, like the SCOTUS is just going haywire, <laughs> right? They just like uh, ruled on something with the EPA and like, you know, and all sorts of stuff. I'm like, you guys see the thing that we're supposed to care about, but like you're saying, like, you know, this is having like a net negative effect on other people, right? And I, man, I just got like so many things I want to talk to you about just based on what you said, but let's, let's linger on comedy for a moment. So growing up, like my life sucked, right? Just had an alcoholic mom. We were living like very low middle class, right? And I, I loved comedy because as terrible as things were, like they helped me laugh about it, right? We could laugh about how awful things are. And it helped me, it helped me. It was like this like kind of healthy coping, uh, coping mechanism, right? Because I was, you know, uh, despite, you know, things going on in my life, my dad raised me, right? He taught me to respect people uh, and everything like that. But it's like comedy had this free reign where I can go there and it's like, this doesn't have real world implications. Even though you see this argument, like you would think that people, you know, watch a comedy special and then go do a mass shooting, right? Like we look <laughs> at a manifesto and they're like, yeah, I was watching like Dave Chappelle and Ricky Gervais and decided to shoot everybody. Like <laughs> we never see that, but you would think that's happening. And that's what really bums me out. Like uh, when I got sober, um, I remember going to just 12 step meetings early on and people were laughing. They were laughing about these painful experiences and it, it reminded me of what comedy was there for. And that's, that's what's so concerning to me, right? Like comedy got me through very difficult times. Like, do you think like, like, I don't know if I'm alone in that, but do you think we're losing that in some Ab way? Absolutely. Uh, so there's a ton of condescension and I taught it's in this chapter too on, on comedy and a ton of condescension in the idea that, well, look, nobody expects the comedian on stage to act out the antisocial behaviors he's talking about. He's not going to go sexually assault someone, shoot up a movie theater, but you might. <laughs> yeah. But we're you kind might of be afraid, dumb enough to do kind this. of afraid of you, you simpleton. Yeah. You, you know, you poor, uh, you know, maleducated person with your bad circumstances and your history and your lack of education. And, and you know, you're just not like me. You're a little, I'm a little better. Yeah. Um, there's a ton of condescension in that line of thought. Um, and it's, you know, it's very frustrating because there are comedians who begin to have begun to internalize this idea that they can't satirize awful things anymore because mm -hmm. they're afraid of not just how people who are mentally unbalanced perhaps will react to them, but also because of the cultural auditors who are afraid of how the mentally unbalanced will react to them and therefore take it out on you. Mm -hmm. um, and this is an idea that's promoted by Seth Simmons. I brought, I, I've talked about the idea somehow that, um, cringe comedians in the early 2000s, cringe humorists, created the conditions that resulted in the storming of the Capitol building. I mean, it takes you, it takes you a, a grand leap of logic to believe that this thing that isn't new, gallows humor, dark humor, satirizing the depths of humanity and finding mm -hmm. levity in them, somehow created this totally black swan event that's never happened before. Yeah. You really have to like, to convince yourself of that. And it's logically deficient. It's also very similar to how the old Puritans in our cultural uh, maturation, the, the right in particular, but also, you know, very preening 
prudish Victorian state left um, went after the humorists of their generations, Bruce mm. uh, uh, or George Carlin, Lenny Bruce, Richard Pryor, all of them were were deemed um, socially unacceptable, were punished socially and professionally because they approached the uh, controversies of their day, you know, the very grave, serious controversies of their day yeah. with flippancy, with mockery. Uh, Carlin in particular, whose who, um, careless mishandling of racial dynamics in America, just being very callous about this grave and serious condition, mm -hmm. um, cre led to his eponymous series on NBC running for precisely four episodes. It was chopped up every episode. It was, it was unintelligible because it was so badly edited and just Ooh. canceled because the guy was just too hot for TV. He was, he was taking this very serious thing and making a mockery of it. And yeah. that, throughout our throughout American history in particular, we've had this tension, this war with with humorists who who dare not take the grave, serious issue of the time, um, treat it with the urgency that respectable people believe it should be treated with. Um, but it used to be, as we said, you know, for most of the 20th century, it was it was a right wing predilection and the left was reliably hostile towards it. And they're just not anymore. Yeah, yeah. And and you took on such a good point, like how condescending this stuff is. And that's what I think I see a lot with this whole thing is just how how we're just like treating people, right? Like when it comes to just, you know, even like misinformation and the way we're trying to baby proof just everything like you like we're just telling people like you are too dumb to deal with this, right? And, uh, you know, I think, uh, again, going back to John McWhorter, I think in our conversation, we we're talking about like the infantilizing of like black Americans, right? Like, uh, like I'm half black and I don't see anybody on that side of the family talking about a lot of these things, but, th but there's like a lot of like, we need to protect, we need to protect these people. Like there's a difference between like being an ally and then just like speaking up for other people. And in a second, I want to talk about the whole cultural appropriation aspect of this, but real quick to round up the comedy section, did you watch the new Ricky Gervais stand up? I did. Yeah. Um, I found it a little gratuitous. Yeah. Honestly. So, yeah. So check it out. So I, I ended up watching it with my girlfriend. I heard just so many things, like obviously whenever one of these comedians is going to about to do a special, there's a lot of rumblings like, oh my God, they're going to do this, this, and this. Then when right. it came out, I heard about it. I'm like, oh, the same like played out transphobic jokes and all these other things. <laughs> and, you know, like anyways, we're watching and there's, you know, there's like, there's like a range. There's a wide range. Like I remember again, going back to just sick, twisted, insane comedy he has a joke for those who haven't seen it spoiler alert he makes a joke about masturbating to a baby picture of hitler right and i'm like holy shit right like it was insane but anyways uh he does have some like trans non-binary jokes in there so let, let me ask you this my question to you like do you think that some comedians are just pandering and repeating some jokes that are very just like you know overused just as a way to be like, look, I'm fighting against like the woke culture. You know what I mean? I don't know. Maybe I, it's so subjective that I, I will, I won't render a judgment on it uh, because the, the hu humor value is a subjective condition. The, yeah. I mean, my only thing, the thing is that you and I are steeped in this sort of thing. So we've heard basically that joke a uh, hundred yeah. times. So maybe it just comes off to us as, you know, a little hackneyed, but only because we've heard it a bunch. doesn't mean everybody yeah. has. Um, and that doesn't mean there's no humor value in it. There absolutely is. Um, it's just that, you know, maybe this is just something that we self-select for and seek out. And I certainly do. So 
to me, I didn't find very much of it, you know, breaking new ground, even though I'm a very big fan of Gervais's work. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in general, you can, you, any commercial product will seek out its audience and try to give that audience what it wants. I mean, that's just trying Ooh. to sell a product. Uh, yeah. but the fact of the matter is that there is a big audience for this sort of thing as that, that act demonstrates uh, he's, he's seeking out an audience that is commercially viable. Uh, mm. and the only alternative to that, if you think that it shouldn't be commercially viable is to stigmatize it is to go after it as somehow so socially irresponsible that it shouldn't be allowed to exist. And if the artist himself won't bottlerize, won't self-censor, self-censor, then you have to go after the institution that would dare lend a platform to that mm. sort of thing. Uh, it's a very censorious impulse, a condescending impulse, uh, one that is uh, directly at odds with and antithetical to the liberal tradition, the enlightened tradition that we inherited. Um, so whether my, it's in my taste or not is utterly irrelevant. <laughs> yeah. And damn it, Noah, you're, the point you just made was way too good. Yeah. Because, like, <laughs> for example, and just to toot your horn a little bit, the reason I love your book is because, like, I've read plenty of just like, anti-woke and how these people are destroying America. I've read a, a million of those books and yours was different. But what I'm getting at is I'm regularly complaining. I'm like, all these books are saying the same thing. But all of a sudden I'll see a book like hit the bestsellers. I'm like, this is nothing new. There's been said a million times. But like you said, there are people who haven't heard of this, right? Like, like I see here, like, for example, a new book comes out about how social media is bad. I'm like, did you not know this? Have you been <laughs> in a cave? Did you not hear that social media might be a little bad for you? But anyway, so that that's a great point that they are, you know, targeting a demographic. But you have to make this and, case over and over and over again. There's no such thing as an argument that's one, yeah. as this book demonstrates. So we're talking about the same things we've been talking about for 400 years. Mm. Arguments are never one. You must make the argument again and again and again for this for every new generation and even sometimes for the same generation which is mm. part of the, the work of uh, intellectual life yeah yeah so you know with this i got a couple more questions for you and you you talk a bit about appropriation and again like i for me personally the the whole conversation around appropriation it seems like kind of like what we were talking about a minute ago where it's doing more harm than good to other cultures right and we've seen people uh, from different uh, countries, nationalities and stuff speak out like, hey, like, especially like people of Asian descent, like there's a lot of them were like, no, we like when you use our stuff, right? <laughs> we like you bringing that out there. But you have like, uh, you know, stories in there about different restaurants and everything like that. And, you know, like, I don't know, do you see, do you see like appropriation like ever going too far, like ever being an issue, right? Like, you know, when, uh, well, I think hair is a very stupid thing. Maybe it's just because I don't, you know, care about hair that much. But like when someone gets like dreadlocks or something like that and they're like white or not from that background. But like, I don't know, like when we're talking about food, when we're talking about art, when we're talking about clothing, I'm like, good. Like we're educating people and it might spark some interest where they want to dive down a rabbit hole, learn more about the culture, learn more about the history, maybe want to visit the place and bring that place, you know, some business and stuff. So like, I, I just, I just don't know if there's like any, any argument where this is like a really bad thing, you know? Well, I mean, part of the reason why I'm probably not destined for the bestsellers list is because I'm <laughs> on two minds on so many of these issues uh, and cult cultural appropriation is, is also one of them. I, I maintain that, first of all, two, two problems with cultural appropriation, which is why I don't think it's a concept that is very long for this world, mm. um, but is nevertheless with us now. Um, one of the problems is that culture is not a zero sum game. Um, it cannot, it's not, I have it, therefore I lose it when you take it. Mm. It's not how this works. In fact, um, it can be 
you can introduce more people to culture in ways that you you don't necessarily with by expanding its definition, by expanding its audience. So what is the definition of cultural appropriation? Generally, it is understood to be the idea, and it's, a lot of people have tried to define it to varying degrees of success. Um, but it's generally the idea that it is uh, an exclusive set of values and traditions and traits that have been appropriated by somebody who is not of that, them, did not, does not value them, and commodifies them and cheapens them in order to profit from them. Mm -hmm. That's what I think a working definition of cultural appropriation would be. And the problem is, is that it, uh, it creates a, a, a sense of exclusivity that isn't there. Um, and that B, uh, victimizes, has been used to victimize, uh, people who, uh, are otherwise are, are using this as a tool to prosecute unrelated professional jealousies. Mm. Um, and many of the stories in the book are about people who are near to, or close to very successful individuals whose accidents of birth, gender, race, ethnicity, creed, um, render them somehow ineligible to perform the, the professions to, who, to which they've dedicated their lives and no. are very accomplished and very good and actually bring a lot of joy to people's lives. And one of the reasons why I think a lot of this isn't long for this world, as I said, is because it robs you of the joy that you would otherwise experience, but it robs you personally. Now, a lot of these people have tried to impose that on the world. But it has to be you that accepts that, that takes that into your heart and makes that a value to which you, you subscribe. And it forces you to engage in the kind of introspection that is paranoid, anxious, uh, utterly divorced from your the re reality around you to a degree that it makes you a very miserable person uh, yeah. and steals, steals from you a lot of great experiences that this world has to offer. And all for some abstract principle that doesn't even make a whole lot of sense. Um, yeah. It's not something that I think is especially valuable. I think it's something that is imposed on you uh, by people who uh, are otherwise tormenting themselves. And you don't need a PhD to understand flippancy and mockery. Yeah. Um, you know it with like pornography. You know it when you see <laughs> it. And so it, it, it's not as though cultural appropriation as a concept doesn't exist in fashion and food. You know it when you see it. You know when someone is being careless and mishandling mm -hmm. um, a cultural tradition and certainly just seeking to profit off it without taking any care or love for it. Now, is that easy yeah. to define? No, but yeah. it's easy to recognize. And it's a sort of thing that is a human trait that's hard to put into a book, but it's one that is nevertheless part of all, all of our lived experiences. Yeah, and you know, it, it almost makes me wonder too, if this like appropriation thing is like, it's almost intertwined with the comedy thing. And I'll just give you an example. like. It, it's like, it used to be like a funny thing. Like if someone tried to do something from another culture and they just completely botched it, you know, that culture gets to make fun of the person. Like, Hey, you screwed this up. And what Absolutely. comes to mind is my girlfriend sent me a, a, a TikTok, and there was this, this white woman, she was, uh, uh, like, uh, making fun of some like Asian dish. Right. And then it was, it was stitched on TikTok. So it's like a reply for those who are not familiar with TikTok. And it was an Asian woman. And, you know, she just explains that this person, you know, doesn't understand the culture. And then she goes and shows another one of the woman's videos where she was like making like sushi or something and completely screwed it up. Right. And I'm like, okay, this is an opportunity to make fun of this lady for just not knowing. Right. And that's how it started. But then it turned into a moral thing. Right. It turned into this appropriation thing. I'm like, I'm like, you know, like this would be so much more enjoyable if you just made fun of her for being dumb you know that's it like we could just we could just leave 
we could just leave it there. And it just seems very counterproductive because again, the left, when I look at the left and see what we value, like we're for like, hey, like bring people in from other countries and let's let's be that American melting pot and share each other's cultures and stuff. But it seems so counterintuitive by saying, you're not allowed to touch it though, right? You can look, but not touch. You can't profit and introduce people to this, but I, I don't know. Like, um, I guess what, I, what we'll end with is one of my favorite quotes from your book, it's early on. And you say, uh, the new Puritans behavior are predicated on the idea that this world can be perfected. Therefore, it must be perfected. That project demands clarity of vision and unity of purpose, not just from themselves, but everyone else, right? So I think that that's one of the main points of the book. And I want you to just kind of break down like why you think the perfection aspect and the seeking of is something that we need to kind of pay attention to. Yeah, well, because as you as you just really aptly sort of condensed into uh, one anecdote, um, what ultimately this outlook forces you to do is to advocate for and create in so far as you can a monoculture um the the progressive activist of, that i'm describing here prides it it himself herself in support for diversity in all things but thought um its members have confused discomfort with threat mm. and non-conformity non with menace um, they've embraced a series of values most of which are unimpeachable in the abstract but they've mm -hmm. applied them broadly to promote what they believe to be a wholesome society. And as such, they've set their sights on the whole of society. <laughs> yeah. Nothing exists outside the remit of this kind of social reformer. And that is outside your reach. It's outside your grasp. You can't do it. Mm -hmm. So it drives you crazy. You've established for yourself a set of goals that you cannot achieve. Yeah. And all that does is, is two things to you. One. It makes you very fatalistic because you've set for yourself a series of moral imperatives that are out of your reach and the institutions aren't listening to you and the people aren't listening to you and nobody's capable of doing what you think need, they need to do. So you become one of two things, really depressed. Yeah. You just sort of fall out of the political process entirely or you radicalize. Yeah. You, get, you become so uh, besotted with your own conception of your own righteousness, your own virtue and your ideal of a moral society. With, to which no institution is, is functionally beholden, uh, and it certainly doesn't meet the measure of the moment, then you resolve to attack the foundations of those institutions because they're wholly immoral. They cannot be allowed to stand. Both of these two things are uh, um, conditions that, that lead to psychosis. They're paranoid. They produce mania in you, and they make you a miserable person to be around. It's a choice to, to be that person. It's also a choice to not be that person. Yeah. And just try to make fun of that person and create a uh, create a stigma around being that person. Um, and that's what I hope to do with this book is give you a little bit of license back to enjoy your life and to dismiss and disregard the people who don't. Mm -hmm. They have made their choice. You can make yours. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like very, very well said. And that's, you know, that's that's like one of the things that I first learned when I got sober was don't take everything so damn seriously right and that's why i love the book and everything that you're arguing for so it was a fantastic book i binged it months ago when you sent it to me so for everybody who was like noah this sounds like an awesome book can you let them know uh not only like the launch date but is it available everywhere is it just in the united states first is it going to be in europe later like how's the launch going 
wow, I don't actually know what uh, what it's like uh, outside of these borders. I know there's a, a deal in Brazil to republish in Portuguese, mm. but I don't actually know what the rest of the situation is like. For, for everybody else, this uh, book comes out on July 5th. It is available uh, in hardback on your Kindle. Uh, it's an audio book. I narrated it if you're mm. into that. Um, so it's available wherever fine books are sold. And I would sincerely appreciate it if you wanted to pick up this book. I, I think you'll enjoy it very much. Yeah, no, and audio is my format. I actually had to use like a text-to-speech for the review copy. So I may get a new one so I can hear your lovely voice. But uh, for when you do find out about other releases and you, you're you regularly writing, uh, where can people follow you, find you, and get more updates? Um, you can find me at commentary.org, Commentary Magazine, where I am an associate editor. I, I blog there on a semi-daily basis, if not a daily basis. I'm also mm. an NBC News contributor. And I write for msnbc.com on a fairly regular regular basis. So you can find me either of those two places. Also follow me on Twitter at Noah C. Rothman. Beautiful. Noah, it's been a pleasure. I'm so glad we were able to link up. And yeah, maybe we'll do this again uh, when you do the next book. I can't wait, Chris. Thank you. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Noah. He's a really cool guy. And I loved talking with him uh, prior to the conversation, like, because I'm, I'm kind of unfamiliar i was unfamiliar with noah's work before i saw the book um because i got the book like right after all like the dave Chappelle stuff and i was just like oh man is this just some like anti-woke like right-wing guy but Noah's like a good dude and i think it's important and, you know one of the things that i just wanted to say too is like um those of us on the left who like uh vocalize you know our issues with these kind of things like you know the 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 war against fun and all that like we do it because we care we do it because we love our side and i could do you know i could write a whole substack piece about this at some point like we do this because we love america and we want the left to win because we truly believe it can make people's lives better but all of this other stuff for me personally, it feels like it's a distraction from all of the economic issues, the quality of life issues, hell, uh, the length of life issues because people can't afford health insurance in this damn country and all that kind of stuff. Like, like I, I think that we need to discuss, hey, maybe we should put some of these things, you know, lower on the priority list while still addressing that there is in fact, you know, racism, transphobia, misogyny, all these other things, right? We can address those while also saying like, hey, like we need to fix systemic issues and make quality of life great for everybody in this country. And personally, I think that's one way to bring the right on board, right? When you're not isolating a single group and you're like, hey, hey, you guys on the right, you'll benefit from this too. They'll love that stuff. So anyways, Noah's book is super important. Uh, like I said, if you're like me, if you're around my millennial age, you've noticed this change, especially in comedy, but just like a lot of the, you know, conversations. And like I, I asked Noah, like people say like, oh, you know, progressiveness is about change and, you know, updating beliefs and all of that. And I think there's a balance to be found with all of this. You know what I mean? But a lot of it, you know, comes from what I think is like black and white thinking, right? Someone made a bad joke. So now all of a sudden they're an awful, terrible person who has no redeeming values. That I'm not cool with, all right? But anyways, Noah's book is out now. Please do yourself a favor, go grab a copy of it. All right, it's The Rise of the New Puritans and make sure you follow Noah over on Twitter. It's linked down in the description below. But anyways, before I let you go, a few things. Uh, a couple things you could do to help support the podcast that I would really appreciate. Uh, one is share it, share this episode, share any episode that you like, social media, uh, 
in an email to friends and family. If you think this was a good conversation, share it. Okay. Second thing, leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts. That helps out a lot with the algorithms and everything. Okay. Those are two completely free ways to help out with the podcast. All right. Some other ways you can help support the podcast. As I mentioned, if you become a paid subscriber over on Substack, it's $5 a month or $50 for the year. You get all the regular episodes a day early and you help support what I do here. And then lastly, there's also um, an affiliate link down below for better help online therapy. And you know, when I'm talking about like prioritizing things and realizing when things are like minimal and like legit don't matter, like this is a part of my mental health. It's something I work on in therapy. And it's, uh, you know, better help is a service that I personally use. So it's very important to me to like, really, you know, not, you know, quote, unquote, like, sweat the small stuff. So therapy has helped me out a ton with, with that. So it's a misconception that you need like a diagnosable mental illness just to benefit from therapy. So if you're interested in checking out better help uh, online therapy, it's affordable. It's super convenient. You work with a licensed therapist. So check out that affiliate link down below. All right. And if you're not yet, make sure you're following the uh, podcast, you're subscribed to it and follow me over on social media at the rewired soul. All right. But anyways, another huge thanks to Noah for taking the time to come on. His brand new book is out now. Head down to the description, make sure you grab a copy. And yeah, for all of you, I hope you have an amazing rest of your day. And I should have a bonus episode for you soon. I actually, uh, am about to talk with some, uh, creators of a very interesting, new docu-series and i had to reach out i'm like listen I, I need to talk to these people and they're coming on so that bonus episode might be out this week or next week so stay tuned all right but again have an amazing rest of your day and i'll see you next time